sharing our faith and passion for the Lord Jesus Christ with others is a desire of Zion Christian Fellowship. Our prayer is that this message will have a lasting impact on your life and draw you closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. This message is not copyrighted. You are free to make copies for friends and neighbors. We only ask that you copy it in its entirety without alterations or changes. Now unto the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Just a comment on that song, 377. I just would call upon some of you young men to pray that song frequently. There is a, there is a need for men to rise up and take a burden, feel the burden, take upon themselves the burden that, that God wants to place on someone to carry the load of, of guiding and leading a flock. And that song is the, one of the best prayers that I know of in our songbook for that. So let's pray to God here. Lord, we come to you, O oh God, to give us a burden for your burden, to know what is your heart, to walk in your way and, and not our own, to walk in joy, to walk in love, to hear your word, to hear from you, not our own words, but your words, O oh God. So bless us this morning. Forgive the sins that that cause you to be grieved and to not be in our presence, to not be present here. Lord, the things that keep us from, from close communion with you. Lord, forgive, we know and trust your salvation and your forgiveness. Draw in the scatteredness of our minds, maybe the tiredness of a late night last night, and just give us awake hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I think about this morning's message, I, you know, sometimes in our congregation we have to remind our, our brothers that the opening message is an opening devotional, and we try to keep it under 20 minutes. But I was given a, uh, permission or, uh, or whatever to, to kind of make this a full message, but I'd still like to keep it short. I feel like I, I took some of Mark's time this morning, uh, last night, I wanted to, don't want to take his time this morning. My title of the message this morning is Serving God in Our Work. And if you're writing that down, you can underline the end. Serving God in Our Work. And it's going to be taken out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I will read 11 and 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 11 and 12. I'm going through 1 Thessalonians. And... Uh, I find it very interesting to go through a book. You end up preaching things you wouldn't preach otherwise. Uh, it's been good. It's been very good. I preached a series of messages on purity that I probably wouldn't have done in a local congregation, except there it was right before this. Okay, 11th verse, 4th chapter, 1 Thessalonians. And, it starts out with the word and, and the, the concept there is Philadelphia, love. He's talking about love, and of course, right love, wrong love, lust is the wrong kind of love, brotherly love is Philadelphia love. 
and it's been the context, but now he's jumping into an and. And, along with this love, that you study, you aim, you work hard to be quiet, to do your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you that, there's three commands there, study to be quiet, to do your own business, work with your own hands. We're going to work, we're going to primarily focus on the working with our own hands as we commanded you that you may walk honestly. This is the, this is why you should be obeying these three commands. There's two promises or two whys, two that's, that. You may walk honestly towards them that are without, and that you may have lack of nothing. There's two, two reasons why you should study to be quiet, to mind your own business, and work with your own hands. So that, so that you can walk honestly towards them, so that you can have a testimony to the world around you. That you're not going to be ashamed and reproached to the cause of Christ, and that you will lack nothing. Those are the two reasons why. Uh, Thessalonians, this... Uh, 2 Thessalonians particularly shows this up. It seems like there's a possibility that the Thessalonians needed to be reminded to work. If the Lord's coming very soon, why bother? Why go to all the bother to work with our hands if the Lord's coming tomorrow? You know, what's, what's the hurry? And of course, in 2 Thessalonians, towards the end, he actually talks about withdrawing from those who walk disorderly. And that disorderly is very related to just not working, working not at all, being busybodies and and uh, Paul rebukes them and actually says to discipline those who will not work. You know, when I was, uh, actually it's my uh, brother's father-in-law, well, a known man, he was a, 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 he's gone now, been gone for 15, 20 years. Delbert Rockwell is a wonderful man. He was a man that was known for his love of eschatology. He loves to study the end times. He was also known as a wonderful carpenter, one of the best in the area, and he never owned his own business. He always worked for someone. He was, he was, everyone knew him, knew that he ought to work for himself. He was just really, really good, had a good reputation. He was known far and wide as one of the best carpenters around. Problem was, he always said, well, the Lord's going to come pretty soon. I'm not going to bother. So there's different ways that, that comes out. You know, the, you know, the Millerites, that would have been the precursors to the Seventh-day Adventists. They they decided the Lord's coming, and they had a date figured out, and they all went up on a hill in Pennsylvania with their ascension robes on and just sat down and waited on the Lord to come, and guess what? We now know, of course, that he didn't come, and they had to keep setting the date, and finally they went back, back down off of their hill and started working again. Back when I was young in Indiana, there was a, a man that was, uh, I don't know if he was jailed or not, but his children was taken away because he believed that, the, that God takes care of the sparrows, He's going to take care of us, so he just kind of locked himself in his house, and his children almost starved to death, and that's uh, somehow somebody found out about it and took the children away because, you know, the Lord was going to provide. Well, obviously, I would just like to say this, uh, has the Lord provided for you? You know, this man, this man that sat in his house, the Lord didn't provide for him. Has the Lord provided for you? Would you all say, yes, he has. How has he provided for you? With work. And so, one of the definitions that I would like to give for work is God's normal means of providing for us. Work is God's normal means of providing for us. Michael Pearl, in exhorting parents to teach children to work, he said this, work, the definition he gave for work, is necessary activity that causes pain. And of course, they, you know, that was just 
Children don't like to work because it causes pain. That's another definition of work. But work is God's normal means of providing for us. God does take care of the sparrows, but He doesn't throw it in the nest. He just does it. In our congregation, I would think probably in this congregation too, we all probably work maybe what? A third to half of our lives is spent working. Is that about right? You know, eight hours a day, that's a third of a day. And some of us work longer than eight hours a day. We take Sundays out. It's probably around a third of our life. And a lot of our young men struggle with that. You know, it's like, you know, when, when do I get a chance to serve the Lord? I have to work all the time. And I hope to speak to that a little bit today. Remember, the title is Serving God in Our Work. Uh, you know, we have, you know, young men especially that, you know, they have, you know, they've got debts and they've got schedules. And when do I get to serve the Lord? That's a, that is something we need to, to exhort on. However, I would like to point out that the Bible speaks to work. Maybe you haven't thought about that. But you know, does, you know, have you ever asked the question, does the Bible to speak to a third of our life? In the back of the, of the church, right on the uh, coat rack, I laid down three copies of all the scriptures I found that related to work. And it doesn't include them all. You can read the whole book of, of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and you'll just find, I didn't put all those verses in there. But there's a lot about work in the Bible. You'll notice that God gave us a fisherman, fisherman apostles. He gave us a carpenter king, and he gave us a tent-making great apostle. Those are things to think about a little bit, and we'll cover a few more. I want to read a couple of, of scriptures here, and there's, like I say, there's a lot of them. You know, the question is, does God speak to our work? Ecclesiastes 9 says, Whatever your hands find to do, do it with your might. And then, of course, I would like you to read the context there sometime. That's in Ecclesiastes 9. You can make a note. We are to enjoy the labor of our hands and enjoy the proceeds of the labor of our hands. There in Ecclesiastes 9. 1 Thessalonians 2, 9. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, Paul speaking, laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. And, of course, the context there is that he worked with his hands so that he would not be a reproach to the gospel of Christ. He, was, he built, he made tents, with a, uh, in some cases with Aquila and Priscilla. Ephesians 4, let him that stole steal no more, but rather labor working with his hands a thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that hath need. Proverbs 3. Now this would be the whole, 31, I'm sorry. This is the whole chapter, women, ladies, mothers, wives, the whole chapter. If you read that, you'll notice that almost the whole chapter is dedicated to the work of a wife and mother. The work. I'm going to read two of the verses. She seeketh wool and flax and worketh willingly with her hands, she, in the 27th verse, she looketh well to the ways of her household and eateth not the bread of idleness. She worketh with her hands, a virtuous woman. God is a worker. Seven days God worked. On the seventh he rested. And I will point out that's in Genesis. And I will point out it's actually several places. I'll also point out that Jesus said in John 5, My father worketh hitherto and I work. He's working for the redemption of the world that he created, bringing it back to himself. 
So, one of the things there in Genesis uh, 3.18 is an interesting point. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, speaking of the curse. Thou shalt eat the herb of the field, and the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return to the ground. So, is work the curse? I don't believe it is. It's the thorns and the briars. It is the, it is the broken down machinery and the difficult customers. That is the thorn. That is the thorn. That's the curse. The curse is not the, 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 the curse is a blessing. I want to say it that way. The curse that God gave to us is a curb. Think of it as a curb. If God didn't place the curse on us as a punishment, but he placed the curse on us as a restraint, a checks and balance to our ambition and to bring a dependency upon God. If there was not thorns and briars, we would become even prouder than we already are. I will point out to you also the fourth command. The fourth command that we often think of as the Sabbath command. But I would like you to notice half of it is six days shalt thou work. It's not just rest, but it is six days to work. There is a command to work. God asks us to work. You know, and, and there's a lot to be said about this, and I'm keeping this message short. I'd like to point out that the Jewish rabbis in Jewish tradition were required to work. If you were going to be a rabbi, then you were called upon to work. And Apostle Paul, of course, knew that. That's why he, he made tents. There was, you couldn't just, there was not a class of people in Jewish culture that was allowed just to sit around and draw from other people. Back in the Reformation, the, the priests and the monks and the kings and the dukes and the earls all saw themselves as above work. And of course, the priests of the, the churchly class, they saw themselves, the, monk, the monks saw themselves above work. And Martin Luther came along and said, wait a minute. And he was, he was, a lot of his writings were dedicated to rising, raising work to a high level of honoring to God. You don't have to separate yourself off in a monastery to serve God. You can serve God in your work. But it was the Anabaptists, really, I believe, they came along and took the whole religion and took it out of the cathedral and put it in the daily life of people. Just to, you can serve God every day, all day. We're not Sunday Christians. We are, we are always Christians. So the Anabaptists taught that, and I believe they brought that, and it's probably one of our problems in the Anabaptist circles is we are probably too prosperous because we've taken that a little too, too seriously, possibly, or wrongly anyway. The Romans had a saying, by doing nothing, men learn to do evil. Isaac Watts wrote in one of his songs, for Satan finds some mischief still for idle hands to do. The Jewish rabbis taught this. He who does not, this has been Jesus' day, he who does not teach his son a trade teaches him to be a thief. And my, one of my favorites, my dad and my grandfather both said it fairly frequently, idleness is the devil's workshop. The Apostle Paul says this about idleness, and he's speaking specifically to women and those who are, uh, don't have anything to do. With all they learn to be idle, wandering from house to house, not only idle but tattlers, and also busybodies speaking things which they ought not. People get into trouble when they have nothing to do. So, what is God's heart in work? I would like to start uh, uh, speaking about evangelism. 
outreach, testimony to the world in our work. I will much you notice in the 12th verse that we just read, that you may walk honestly towards them without, and that you may have lack of nothing. I would like to emphasize this honestly towards them that are without. With our head held high, without mooching on others, without being, you know, without being just grabbing and pulling and, and being a bloodsucker to society. And, you know, that's a reproach to the cause of Christ. And so our work needs to be part of our outreach. It needs to be part of our testimony, part of what we do to show others what it looks like to be Christians, like we talked about last night. What does it look like to be a Christian? So I will, I will put this, what I wrote down honestly. It's a good testimony from living irreproachable lives in the sight of our neighbors. Because the world is watching us. You know, in this community, likely, when you go into town, people know where you go to church. Pretty likely. You know, they know you're at least some of the plain people. And they are wondering, who is Jesus to you? Or who is Jesus at all? And our work is one of the most common ways that we're going to find our interaction and our brushing up against the world is in our workaday life. So if we want to talk about evangelism, outreach, and showing who Jesus is, our work is probably one of the, of the most logical and most common places we will find ourselves interacting with the world and being able, an opportunity, a context, to show people who Jesus is. You know, if work is God's normal means of, show, of providing for us, it's possible we could also say work is God's most normal means of us interacting with the world. That's very possible. I read about a church recently that actually has a commissioning. They'll actually take people who want this, and they, they work in the workaday world, and they, have, they bring them up from the front of the church, and they lay hands on them and commission them, just like a missionary, to become missionaries to the job site, to their work and day environment. I think that's a fairly good idea. I'm not sure that we should do that, but I, it intrigued me that that is a possibility. Work is our most common experience. You know, it says there, I believe it's in 2 Peter, it says that our brotherhood, which is in the world, you know, the idea there is that we don't suffer any more than other people do. We have the same, a lot of the same problems and pains. Work, our neighbors work, the heathen work, a lot of our customers are and our and the people we interact with are workers. So there is a common window of opportunity for us to speak to people in work life. You know, when I think about when I was uh, first started my business and Canaan was nine years old, my son was nine years old, and we bring him to the job. And, and he was probably, I don't know, probably a little bit prejudiced, but he seemed unusually just, he, he loved to work. And he, he, was, he was good to work with. And his manner of being on the job with me at nine years old gave me many, many opportunities to speak about the Christian home, the Christian family, what it means to raise up children in a Christian environment. I had many, because people would comment on it. It was commented on a lot that your son is so, so hardworking and so obedient and you don't have to be told what to do. And, and I, it gave me many, many opportunities to speak to people. It was an opportunity many times. Something else we can do. I remember years ago, somebody was telling tell, tell me, it was a, he was a very opinionated man. He says, it takes two incomes, Clinton, nowadays to make a living. 
I, of course, I was young, young and brash, and I said, well, I don't know. I know about 100 families just immediately that don't have two incomes, and they're doing just fine. Not all of us are Amish, Clint. Well, I wasn't Amish either, but anyway, that was, he was, the idea was, I gave it an opportunity to show that, that we have rearranged our life around a single income. Why? Because of the principles of God. It gives us an opportunity to speak about those things, to raise up godly children. I would like to, to point out that we're speaking about evangelism. I would like to say to you mothers, you read Proverbs 31, this is not just for men. I would like us to see our work that we do in our home as a context for raising children. That is our opportunity to show cheerfulness and hard work and, and diligence and, and order and structure and, and just you know, how, to, how to work without being aggravated at one another and work peaceably together. There's all kinds of evangelistic opportunities, mothers, in your work, in the home, with your children. And it's a mission field. I would just like to say this, that we should be known. If we are Jesus followers and we have a testimony in the neighborhood for our work, we should not be known for fast and cheap and sloppy and quick and, you know, cutting corners. That should not be who we are. We should be known for good work. I want to emphasize that. Good work at a fair price. We should be known not for, you know, well, he's really high priced. You know, just uh, last week, I believe it was, it was a week before, probably was, I was out looking at a job, and I, this don't always happen, but I, I we gave him the price, and, and uh, for, I don't know, I'll say, 15, 20 windows or whatever it was. I gave them a price. And, oh, I could see the surprise on their faces. And we, he, I, he wrote the check to me. He said, I want to tell you something. He said, I had a, a large company in our area. He said, I had a large company come, and they gave me a price. And he, he told me what it was. And it was three times, three times, not 30% more, but three times what I had tried. I thought we were doing just fine at that price. I don't want to be cheap. But I do want to be a fair-priced person who surprises people over and over again at the quality of my work. That is, because that is a testimony for Christ. When I was growing up, there was a, there was a, a family there in the area that, I don't know, is, there were several issues. But anyway, he had four sons, and he decided to go into big guns. We're going we're gonna to become big. And so we're going to build houses, and we're going to build them fast, we're going to build them cheap. And they just started, you know, they put in these trenchy foundations, poured concrete, and built a house one after the other, after the other, after the other. They were cheap, junky little houses. You know, I, and maybe I'd tell a different story if they had been successful. They actually ended up going bankrupt. It was a very sad situation. And the worst of it was, not only was it a bad business decision to do fast, cheap, and corner-cutting work, it was also a very poor testimony in the neighborhood for our workers. I would like to read this. This is a quote I found several years ago and had it in my file somewhere along the way. I don't remember where I got it, but I liked it. How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern for nine-tenths of our lives? The church's reproach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours, and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this. 
that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good furniture and build good houses. The only Christian work is good work, well done. I just like that quote. I really liked it. So, we do not slog through our work five, six days a week waiting on Sunday to get a chance to serve the Lord. We don't wait till January we can go on a camp trip or to Haiti. We serve the Lord in our work daily. Daily work. Another point I would like to make is that we work as servants of Christ. Now, if you have your Bibles, you can look these verses up. But you'll, you'll recognize them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read them. I want you to listen very carefully. Some of you maybe wonder my voice. I got a second round of COVID here at the end of last year, and my voice has not liked me ever since. In Colossians 3, you're very familiar with this. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Do what you do, not to men, but to the Lord. You remember these were slaves who often had no choice in these matters. Knowing that the Lord, from the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. And then Ephesians, remember Ephesians and Colossians are commentaries one on another. If you've ever read them one after the other, you'll see that it's a lot of the same same phrases, same, even some of the same order in Colossians and Ephesians. Very similar in Ephesians. In the, just jump into the middle. As servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. We serve not men, but Christ. You get up in the morning, You've got a job to do. You're serving a customer. You're not just serving the customer. Your reward is ultimately in heaven. And we often think of it as reward for a paycheck or keeping our customers happy. If we make the Lord Christ happy, I guarantee you, we will make our customers happy. It's primarily an attitude, as I've been thinking about it. It is primarily an attitude, you know, a, a, a mindset. Because we don't see Jesus when we're working on the job. But if we think of him at every moment in our workaday world, it'll change what we do work for. You know, it'll change whether we're working for money, retirement, prestige, you know, to get a, you know, get a bigger reputation, or do we work for the cause of Christ? It's an important point. A vocation. A vocation is a calling. We serve the Lord Christ in our work, and some people have a calling. You know, some people are doing what they're called to do. I think about a man who was a ne'er-do-well until he found the work that suited him. And then all of a sudden he prospered. A lot of times when we find what we're doing is what we like to do, we get good at it, and it kind of becomes our calling. And that's not all bad. That's a good thing. But I would like us to, to think of pursuing the caller, not just the calling. If we pursue Christ in our work, we will find purpose and meaning in our work. If we don't, we'll fall into workaholism, which is a problem for some of us. 
We will fall into burnout. We'll get sick of it. And we'll fall into materialism. What is burnout? Burnout is caused by working for things that will burn up. We will get burnout working for things that will burn up. If we work for the cause of Christ, for the reward that he gives, we will not be burned up. Wives, if you're serving Christ in your home, it's not your husband. You know, if you serve, her, your, you serve Christ, you will be serving your husband. But if your goal is to make your husband happy, many of you will be disappointed. Because us husbands are pretty poor at being thankful. But Christ is the rewarder. Pastors are often will be frustrated if they expect affirmation from the congregation. It often doesn't work. If we are serving the Lord Christ, we will not get burned up and we will have energy. Plenty of energy. Because our work is not intended to supply our meaning, purpose, or worth. We do. We men are very prone to find meaning and purpose and worth in our lives through our work. God does not intend that. Our work and purpose and our meaning and worth and purpose is intended to be gotten from Jesus Christ and Him alone. When we, have, when we are getting our worth from Him, we will find that we're not in constant up and down, up and down, discouragement, low energy levels. We will find ourselves in a different place. Because God has placed value on us. He's given us worth. What I would like to get out of that is that we are not getting it out of our work, but we are also, because we know that we are worthwhile in the eyes of God. He has given us that worth. He says we're, our soul is worth more than the, than, than the whole world. Think about it. If we get that truth deeply embedded in our hearts, our customers, our fellow employees, our boss, our co-workers also have worth. They too are valuable and we will, it will affect how we work with other people. It will affect our work. It will affect our relationships. We will treat one another differently as we see worth in them. As I have often wondered, why is the plain people largely so successful in business? I believe it's at least in part because we place value on people. If we see people as primarily as income sources and not as, as people that are worthwhile in the eyes of God, we will treat them differently depending on how we view them. I knew a man that went out of business, went, actually just didn't work well at all. And I believe that primarily it was because he saw his customers as income sources, not as people, not as people, not as, not as possibly potential brothers and sisters in Christ. So, Our view of God, God's view of us, our belief in that. You know, I I was reading about the Quakers in England, and they got persecuted pretty badly before they came to America. And one of the things that the people that drove them out were actually the businessmen that were not Quakers. Because people would go out to the other town to have the Quaker shoemaker, the Quaker blacksmith, because Quakers were known... This was kind of, it was in their thee and thou and all their, their, even their language was designed to show respect, to respect others. So they did good work at a good price and they were respectful of their customers and people went to them instead of the other people and that, that made people upset, pretty upset. So money is not the measure of our worth or our work. Service to people 
is. You know, I was, uh, for a time in my life, I was raising pumpkins for the Halloween industry. I don't care to explain how I ended up there. I didn't want to be, but somehow I was, and, and uh, I was caught helping. I mean, it wasn't my business. I was helping someone else. I was working for someone else. I just felt useless and worthless doing that. Is the work that we do serving a real need in people's lives? I did not see Halloween pumpkins as one of those real needs. So our work needs to be serving people. I'll talk about that a little bit more a little bit later on. The purpose of our work in 1 Thessalonians and in 1 Timothy is to provide for ourselves and for our own. That is the purpose of work. The other purpose is that it support the weak and give to the needy. That would be in Acts and in Ephesians. To support the weak and give to the needy. Our work has meaning and purpose if the proceeds of it are being used for what God intended. That's how it has purpose and meaning. Our expense account and our budgets and our schedules are a theological document telling the world and telling ourselves and telling those that know us what we really believe about where our treasures are and what is valuable and worthwhile in the world. When I think of, of that, I think of R.J. Letourneau. R.J. Letourneau was the man that he was a big businessman. And as he got wealthier and wealthier, he started out giving 10% of his income and then 20% of his income. And by the time he was later in life, he was giving away 90% of his income to good causes, to the Lord. And I would like to challenge us. We, we, hopefully we are giving 10% of our incomes. I think that would be good. I recommend that and encourage that. I would like to challenge us that we should be giving 10% of our time to. I believe that. You know, it's easy for us in ministry to say that. I probably give, I was figuring it up the other day, and I think I probably give pretty close to a sixth or, or more of my, uh, well, two months out of 12 for sure is spent in ministry. And, I, and so I don't know what, I maybe got my math wrong there. But it's more than 10%. And I know it's harder for, for young people and, you know, people as they're trying to find their way in life. But do you have a plan? R.J. Letourneau had a plan. He had a purpose. He had a program. He had a, he had rearranged his life around serving the Lord with a percentage of his life. And I would like to see us do that. Not just say, well, I will someday when I get time. No, the Lord wants us to take the time now. Arrange your life around giving to the Lord work. Not just for your bank account, but for the Lord. A Barnapole, I read, says this. Weekly churchgoers are more likely, they ask the questions, are weekly churchgoers more likely to admire people who make a lot of money by working hard, that was number one, or people who take lower paying jobs in order to serve people. Sadly, the Barnapole discovered that they actually admired people who made more money by working hard than they did people who rearranged their life around service to other people. That was sad to me. That was very sad. I was reading in, in an article, I think it was in that same Barnapole article, it told about a man who had a very high-paying job, but in his neighborhood, in his town, there were people, uh, it, was, it was a mess. There was a lot of gangs and a lot of violence, and especially in the, in the, the parks and the recreation areas in the town, 
was being used as gang hangouts, drug exchange places, a lot of graffiti, and, and there's, it was not a good thing. He decided to quit his job and go to work for the parks department in his town. And over a two-year period of time, he you know, put up street lights, cleaned up the, the parks, got you know, rearranged with the, the police force, and cleaned up the town. And so that people began to actually enjoy their neighborhoods, they enjoyed being there, and he was a Christian. So the newspaper came to interview him, you know, because they realized he'd done an amazing work in just two years, had made the town a much nicer place for people to live. And he said this, when they asked him why he did it, why did you quit your good job and go do this? And his answer was, I just love the answer, because in this job, I can serve my community better and more directly. I really appreciated that answer. So in closing, I would like to say this. Work becomes worship when done for the Lord Jesus Christ. We, how, do we, how do we serve the Lord in that third of our lives? We work for the Lord. We worship the Lord in our work. So this definition, I'd like to repeat it. Work is God's normal means of supplying for us and others and putting us in contact with one another and for outreach. That is God's normal means of doing that. Now, as I close here, I would like to give you some names. I want you to listen carefully. And then maybe one of you can shout out what is common about these names in light of this message. Moses, listen carefully, Moses, Gideon, David, Amos, Ruth, Elisha, Peter, John, and Matthew. What do they have in common one with another? Hmm. Okay. When I gave it at our congregation, somebody shouted out just about a second after I said it. They were all called by God in their work. If you think about it, Moses was herding sheep. Gideon was threshing grain. David was with the sheep. Amos was a farmer called of God. Ruth was gleaning the field when she was called. Elisha was what? Plowing with oxen. Peter and John were fishing. Matthew was sitting at the receipt of customs. These were all men. They were not separated. You know, well, I, you know, I'm just too busy. God can't get a hold of me. God can't talk to me. God, you know, I'm just, I'm doing my work. And, and so I don't have a chance to communicate with God. That's not what happened. God spoke to these men, called these men, brought them into his work while they were working. So we are all called to serve God in our work, not waiting for God to call us when we're done working. God bless you this morning.